Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. Thank you for the invitation to come and the warm welcome we felt since we're here. Appreciated our Sunday school class this morning with the men. Is this water for me? I'm not as thirsty as the children of Israel were, but thank you for the water. Yesterday, we were at a, a family camp, um, my mom's extended family, and Levi and Judy were there, and I just wanted to say, from Levi and Judy to Leon and Martha, how was it? Tell you all that. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Ephesians chapter uh, 3, is where we'll begin. I would like to share a message with you this morning that I preached at home a few weeks ago at our council meeting. And what I would like to share with you this morning is something that's, that's close to my heart. And I know that it's not just relevant to, to our church at Wills Ridge, but it's relevant to you here and to wherever people, Christians gather together in and as a local brotherhood, this, this subject is relevant. I'd like to ask you a couple of questions just to get your minds thinking. Are you here at Bethel experiencing all that God, all the blessings that Christ has to offer you in brotherhood? Are you realizing the full potential of church? And what makes the difference between an okay church and an, an excellent church? What makes the difference between a mediocre church and an outstanding church? You know, it can almost feel disrespectful to talk about a church for churches and to rate them like we would a restaurant or coffee or comparing the difference between a, a cheap deli croissant and a, a genuine French croissant. We're talking about church, not food, not coffee and restaurants this morning. What makes the difference? What determines the rating of your church? Is it Google? Now I looked up our church on Google, and we have five stars on Google for Wills Ridge Mennonite Church. I think we have five reviews. I looked up Bethel Mennonite Church. You also have five stars. I think y'all have nine reviews on Google. And one of the reviewers said, uh, warm, friendly, welcome. And that's a good thing here at Bethel. Warm, friendly, welcome. But what determines the quality of our church? Are we fulfilling the purpose for which the church is created? <clears throat> if we looked out in the parking lot here this morning and we saw two tractors, one of them is green, a huge articulating 9570R John Deere tractor with 570 horsepower. And I said, beside, beside it, there's a 
a 16.5 horsepower BX1880 Kubota subcompact tractor. And we look out there and we wonder, now which of these tractors is superior? Which one is, is the better tractor? Well, the question has to be asked, what do we, what do we need a tractor for? What's the purpose? We have to know what the purpose is before we can make that judgment. Are we going to plow a thousand acres? Or do we need a tractor to mow an acre of lawn and, and push a little snow and still have room in our parking lot to park our car? If that's the case, then obviously the smaller one is what we need. So as we begin this message, we need to think about what is the primary purpose of the church. And I'll just ask you, what do you, what, what do you think? What is the primary purpose of the church? Anybody? There's probably several things we could we could think of. I do think there's an overarching uh, purpose that I would like to look at first. Um, is it to evangelize? Is that the prim- primary purpose of the church, to evangelize? To get as many people in our doors as possible. To be a positive influence in our community. To be involved in community service. Is that the primary purpose? If Having huge, a, a huge attendance record is our purpose, then Joel Osteen has it figured out at Lakewood Church in Houston with a weekly attendance of 52,000 people. He has a four and a half star uh, rating on Google. They've got something going on that, that could seem like it's right. It's a lot of people. And I ask again, what is the primary purpose of the church? And I'd like to look at Ephesians chapter 3 to begin with, and we'll begin reading at verse 1. And I especially want us to notice as we get down to verse 10. Um, that's the key verse that I want to notice here um, at the beginning. I'm going to skip over a couple of verses. Ephesians chapter 1. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given to given me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, down to verse 5, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles could be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. To the intent 
that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be, might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, and whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Notice verse 10. This is what I picture when I read verse 10. If, if we can picture God in all His glory in, in eternity where He dwells, and He's surrounded by the host of heaven and the spiritual, and I think that's what it's talking about here when it says principalities and powers. So He's surrounded by the host Maybe the kingdom of darkness and all the hosts of the kingdom of darkness are, are, are there watching as well. God holds forth this mystery that's been shrouded since the beginning of the world. There's a mystery that's been shrouded. It's been hidden. And he slides off the cover, revealing a, a gem, dazzling in beauty, glorious to behold. And he says, look what I have created. First for my own heart, created by my son. This is irrefutable proof of my wisdom. And he's talking about the church. The church is a masterpiece of the manifold wisdom of God. Continue reading. Verse 13. Wherefore I desire that you faint not at my tribulation for you, which is, which is your glory. For this cause I bow my knee unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all things what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. What I see in these verses, and I'm not going to dwell on them long because it's not the message for this morning, but I see that there is, as we as individuals are coming, coming to God, that there's this beautiful work that happens in us as individuals. Being strengthened by the Spirit, Christ coming in and dwelling in us, in our hearts, and we begin to understand the depth of God, of Christ's love for us being filled with the fullness of God. But then let's read verse 20 and 21. It says, Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. So here Paul is committing us as individuals, into the hands of the Almighty God, 
who is going to do something with us that is more and greater than, than anything that we can imagine. He's able to take this motley congregation of individual people, that's, that's all of us, and, and to do something with us that is impossible. Making something beautiful out of it. Something that brings him so much glory. And verse 21 says, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without, without end. So, what's the primary purpose of the church? It's to bring God glory. I think it makes it very clear in verse 21. The church. It's to bring God glory, and it does. As I look at chapter 3, I, I see the. It's like we're taking a, a big picture look at, at the church. From way back in eternity, uh, way, way up where God is, and we're looking, looking down and, and seeing the church there. Um, so the broad perspective. It's like looking up into the heavens and seeing the stars. We see all the stars. The stars, um, the heavens declare the glory of God. The church declares the glory of God and the wisdom of God. But now as we move over to chapter 4, we're zooming in to examine this gem. What is it about the church that is so glorious? What is it about What is it about the church? What is God doing in her that shows his wisdom? And how do I fit into that picture? What is my part? So now we're thinking about church at, at a closer level. What is the primary purpose of the church? And I'd like to respond. Now we talked about the overarching purpose to bring God glory. Um, but now we're down here. We're living here. What should we be focused on? What should our purpose be? What is our primary purpose? Y'all have any thoughts on that? Pardon? To be like Jesus. Good. Good. Do you have anything to add to that? Those thoughts. Okay. Advance the kingdom of God. Appreciate those thoughts. There's two things 
that are, that are laid out here in chapter 4 that I would especially like to look at this morning. And I would like to suggest that these two things have to be the, the first priority of the church. And I'm talking about the local church uh, here at Bethel and our church up there in Florida. The first one is a state of being, and the second one is a process. The state of being is unity, and the process is edification, as is mentioned over here. Uh, edification. Now, I think that these two things have to be a priority in in church before evangelism. Before community service, some people would argue that that's an inward focus, and maybe it is an inward focus. But I would say this: if things aren't good at home, how can we bring people in? If we evangelize people and they're converted, what do we bring them home to? What can we bring them home to? Many of us are married, and we have homes, and we have marriages, and there's going to be another marriage next Saturday. In our home, I believe it's imperative that we make the marriage be a priority. If, if your relationship with your spouse is strong, your marriage is good, there's no risk between you. There's no conflict there. Then your family can thrive. But if there's broken, a broken relationship, and there's there's division in your marriage, then I don't think it's possible for your family to thrive, for your home to thrive. Yesterday, I got a voicemail from a customer of mine. And then I got a text from him, a text that I just left you a voicemail, you can delete it. Well, I was just curious what the voicemail was. So I listened to the voicemail, and it was a pocket dial. It was back to that. Um, I probably should have deleted it right away, but I listened a little bit. And I thought to myself as I heard what was happening, I, I thought, this marriage will not last. It's a second marriage. But it didn't sound good. Never something that you want to leave on somebody's voice now. Uh, there, was, there was definite division and, and arguing going on. I don't want to undermine the importance of evangelism. I think that's, that, that is a, a huge part of what the church is about. But I think the, the number one primary purpose of the church is to nurture and to be unified and to, to foster growth among the members.
Not only is that what's glorious about the church, Ephesians 4, verse 1. Therefore, the, I'm sorry, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all long-suffering and meekness, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling wherewith we have been called. They use the word in the King James, the vocation, our vocation, or calling. That we walk worthy of that. What is that calling? to bring glory to God in the context of brotherhood. Notice in verse 27 of 21 of the last chapter something that stood out to me there. That the glory that, that Christ is receiving is not on an individual level. It's on a church level. It's not me bringing glory to God and you bringing glory to God and you separately it's together we bring glory to God. And, and that will be the case for eternity. I'd like to continue reading, and we're going to read all the way down through verse 16. Um, we're going to omit verses 8 through 10. Notice the singularity of these next verses. There is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Down to verse 11. <clears throat> and he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto, the perfect ma- unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the flight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up, grow up into him in all things which is the head, even Christ, <clears throat> from whom the whole body, fitly joined together and compacted, by that which every joint supplies, according to the effect of working and the measure of every part, make it increase the body and to the edifying of itself in love. So here we have many members 
we could turn to First Corinthians, but we're not going to. Many members, one body, one faith. Now look around here this morning at Bethel. All these individuals, you have different backgrounds, and you have different personalities. You look different. So I know who you are. You look different. And you have different perspectives on things. You wear different glasses. We all wear glasses. The glasses that we wear are shaped by the homes we were raised in. The glasses we wear were actually shaped by probably generations of, of our forefathers and the way they think and, and where life took them. And, where, and so we inherit glasses. But we all have glasses. And they're all different. We see things differently. And in this room, we have Joders. And we have Waldrons and Nicens, Saltuses, Summers and Goods, Glicks, Trucks, Morgans, and probably some more. And more Yoders. More Yoders this morning than normal, I guess. Because there's some visiting Yoders here. But we're all different. And we're all pulled together in Christ to form a body. And each one of you that formed this congregation at Bethel brings something unique into this body. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about, about different gifts of the Spirit, different assignments that we're called to. And here also in the chapter of verse 11. Some of you are prophets. Some of you are teachers and pastors and so on. There's a difference between a pastor and a prophet. And sometimes they don't see things the same. But they're part of the same body. Some of you are muscles and some of you are bones. If, you, if any of you have read Gary Miller's book about the church, which was released here in the last year or so. I have not read the whole book, but I've looked through it. He talks about bones and muscles in the church. And it, there's bones and there's muscles. Different personalities. But we need each other. God brought you together here on purpose. We need each other's perspectives and input in each other's lives. Just like the bones need the muscles to move them, the muscles need the bones to hold them back to get something done. I believe that God's design for Christians not to live alone, not to do it on their own, but to be done in community and be done in brotherhood. God doesn't give it all to one, but He gives some to all so that together we have what we need. 
for the perfecting of the saints and the edifying of the body of Christ. And that's the process, edification. The building up of the body of Christ so we can grow together in the likeness of Christ. So we come in the unity of faith. And in verse 14, it mentions a stabilizing factor of brotherhood, of church. We need each other. So here we are, pressed together, working together, edifying each other, spurring each other on in our walk with Christ, and there's discipleship that happens, there's seeking counsel, there's giving counsel, there's praying together, and there's weeping together, and there's laughing together, and there's struggling together, and there's yielding to each other, and submitting one to another. These are all things that are be happening. And in all of that, there's a careful watchfulness over the body, watching over the purity of the church, and dealing, if necessary, with sin, and correcting and disciplining. And I would just say this, that the health of the body is more important than a personal relationship with someone. I think sometimes it's easy to have a close relationship with someone in such a way that it actually prevents the church from, from dealing with things as it should. So as this process is happening and there's unity, God holds this gem aloft for all to see. The church, the splendid gem, the evidence of his wisdom. So how are things at Bethel? Are you experiencing the deepest level of church, the richness and fullness of all the blessings that God offers us for brotherhood? Are we satisfied with a gooey, a gooey, jelly croissant? Or have we tasted the authentic French croissant? That's what I want. I'm sure it's much better. I've never had one. But I saw a video of a guy that was describing the difference, and it definitely looks better. <clears throat> is your church an okay church, or is it an exceptional church? It's brotherhood as deep as a well. Now, I'm not here to make a judgment on, on your church this morning at all. But if your congregation is anything like ours, then there's probably work to be done. There's room to grow. You know, there's different levels of brotherhood and church. There's so many churches that are merely, where church is merely a place to go on Sunday morning and to hear a sermon. And that's the extent of church. 
And I think, sadly, in some of our conservative circles, that may be the case. Maybe that's just true. But then there's also another and another end of the, the spectrum, and, and we have the Hutterites. We live in colonies, and everything is done together as a group. You live on the same farm, you work in the same farms and factories, and at least one meal a day you eat together. You have one bank account. I had the privilege last summer, in August, I think it was August, no, it was in September. Um, Steve and I went up to Ohio for our Kingdom Discipleship for Ministers Week up there, and that, that was a real blessing. And there were some Hutterite brethren that came, uh, elders in a couple of different Hutterite colonies. One of them was from the Midwest, and the other one was from Tasmania. And it was fascinating to watch these men, these brothers, and the way that they related to each other. I could tell by watching them that they knew each other in a way that most of us men don't know each other. They could tell what the other guy was thinking. And, and they genuinely enjoyed each other. It was fascinating to watch. They, they, they loved each other. Um, You know, we might look at the Hutterites and think that's extreme, and, and maybe it is extreme. But I would say this: if you put the Hutterites, and this was not the old colony Hutterites, this was a they came out of the old colony and were they had a good grasp on the kingdom and salvation. Um, so we put the Hutterites on one end of of the spectrum, and we put the, the only church on Sunday on the other end of the spectrum, where is the proper balance in all that? And I'm not going to tell you where I think it is, because I don't know where it is. But I think this direction is more biblical than that direction for the church, wherever we come out on that. I was talking with a, a circle of us members, talking with this Tasmanian Hutterite. Um, he was from non-Mennonite background, non-Anabaptist background, and he joined the Hutterites. And he was saying that there was a transition that had to take place that I found very fascinating. <clears throat> he said it felt like everything inside of him had to die to make that transition. Everything that he identified with and who he thought he was had died. And it was tough. But after that experience, he came out the other side thinking completely different. Everything that he thought, everything he did, and his identity was wrapped up in a community rather than as an individual. And I thought that was fascinating and actually quite beautiful. I'm not here to try to turn you into 
Questions for us to think about. How well do you know each other? How open are you with each other about your lives, about your struggles? Are there areas of your life that are off limits? In your brotherhood. Do you feel like you can trust your brothers and sisters? And if you can't, why not? Has your trust has have they broken that trust somehow? Have you been offended by anyone? If you say you haven't, you're probably not telling the truth. That's we live with humans. That happens. Have you been offended by anyone? Have you have you ever offended someone to your knowledge? Do you have negative or bitter thoughts or attitudes towards anyone? How much do you value the input and challenge of your brothers and your sisters into your lives? When have you given up something or changed something in your life or your practice in direct response to a brother or sister sharing a concern with you? And when have you been willing to go and share a concern with someone else? And that is tough. That is probably one of the hardest things that we have to face as a church. Not a fun thing to do. Do you care enough for your brothers and sisters to pursue them, to know them, to understand them, and to love them with genuine Christian love? Do you value the other's personalities and perspectives and glasses that they wear? Just some questions that think about where we're at as a brotherhood. When I think of our church at home, I know that we've got a long way to go. There's always room to grow. And as I consider myself, I realize that I have failed our brotherhood, and I regret that. I'm not going to give solutions to all those questions if the answer came out wrong, but there are solutions. If I've been offended, there's, there's a way forward. If I've offended, so on, there's, there's solutions. When Cheryl and I were dating, we can make a commitment to each other that we will never go to sleep at night with anything between us 
no secrets, no hurts, no misunderstandings. We wanted to face every new day knowing that everything is completely clear between us. And that has been a tremendous blessing in our marriage. Have we always been faithful with that? I'd probably not completely, but that has been our goal. Down in verse 25 and 26, it says this, Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man's truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. I think that commitment kind of came out of that verse. When you talking about that. But I'd like to challenge you here to reach to that level of brotherhood. If things are not clear between me and a brother or sisters, don't let the sun go down until you have taken steps to reconcile and to to bridge that gap. Sometimes it takes time. Can't, things can't all be fixed overnight or in an afternoon or in an hour. Things take time. And so we need to begin to make those steps to, to work towards that reconciliation. Do you love the body of Christ so much that you're willing to do your part to make sure that there's no rifts or divisions or schisms in it? Unity of the body of Christ is very, very close to the heart of God. Communication is vital in keeping things where they should be. I think there's probably been more marriages destroyed because of a lack of good communication. It's probably the same in church. Good, humble, open communication. Over the last number of years, as a deacon, I have noticed in our church any relationships that I'm that I am involved in, that sometimes there is hurt and brokenness because of a, a misunderstanding. And it can kind of build on itself. We need communication, good communication, to overcome those things. So in conclusion, what makes the difference between a humdrum church, an okay church, and an excellent church? And I believe it's from these two things that we looked at here are functioning properly. There's unity, and there's pushing each other forward in our walk with Christ. Edifying each other. When those two things are functioning as they should, then you have an excellent church. 
then you have something that you can work from in evangelization. In fact, that unity is probably the most powerful evangelism tool that we have, which is unity in church. People see that. It requires humility, brokenness, a willingness to be vulnerable with each other, open, surrender, selflessness, ideally, all the individual members are actively hanging on the cross. That's what it takes. All the members hanging on the cross. Peace and unity come with full surrender to the Lordship of Christ and complete surrender to self. So all of our congregations, Bethel, Chapel, Willsbridge, wherever there's a church gathered together, we all have rough edges. The perfect church will be after we pass over there. We're not going to get it here because we're people. We have rough edges that need to be chipped off. There's policy that needs to be done. And that's the work that's got, that God's doing here at Bethel. Abundantly more than you can ask to see. He's actively working to refine this beautiful gem. And he's going to hold Bethel out. Look at what I did. Look at what I've created through my son. Glorious masterpiece of his wisdom. God bless him. Set us all.